Once you turn over to Romans chapter 7, that's where we're going to pick up where we left off um, today. One of, the, one of the things that we're going to see, and you know this, Paul is a very important person in our Christian faith. Would you agree? A very, very important person. And yet Paul, Paul just like you and I, he struggled. He struggled in life. Um, and I'm one of the things that I've been reminded of as I've walked through this is the frailty and the vulnerability that all of us have. Sometimes people ask me what I do for a living, and Mark, I don't want to tell them. Because honestly, if I tell them that I'm a pastor, I have something to do with, with church. Sometimes, it, man, it just makes the conversation go crazy. You know, you know, all of a sudden we're having a normal conversation about life, and then when they find out I'm a pastor, what do you, what do, you do for a living? I work with people. That's about the only thing I can come up with these days. Because it makes the conversation, because I, I, guess think, I guess people think pastors don't have problems. You just keep thinking that, okay? Don't talk to my family, don't, don't, especially don't talk to my wife, uh, <laughs> especially after a conversation we had last night. She said, you've lost your mind. I said, no, I haven't lost my mind. I'm good. But it just reminds me that the Christian life is full of successes, it's full of failures, it's full of pains and sorrows ups and downs. I mean, if you take the scripture and you look back, David, you have a David that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. And yet we know that David committed adultery. In addition to that, David also tried to have the, the husband of his mistress killed. Or you take the life of Abraham, which was known as a, as a man of great faith. And yet man, uh, Abraham was, a, was dishonest. He was a liar, believe it or not. You take a man like Jonah, who probably had the greatest evangelist, was probably the greatest evangelist to ever live, and yet Jonah in his life came to the place that he didn't want to do what God told him to do. He rebelled against God and found himself in the belly of a whale. Or in the New Testament, a man like Peter, who was one of the first that Jesus would call that he would respond to come and follow Jesus as a disciple. And yet, right before Jesus' death, you know it, Jesus said, you'll deny me. Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. And, but he did, and it wasn't once, and it wasn't twice, but it was three times Peter would deny the Lord. And I think, you know, there's just not a lot of difference between them and us, is there? How many times do we want to do what's right, and yet we fail to do what's right, and we do what's, what's wrong? The word saint is not going to be a word that we find inside of our passages of Scripture today, but I want to make note of it, and I'd like to just mention that. A saint is a person that has been set apart by God. It's not a perfect person, but it's a person that's been saved by God's grace. I'm reminded of the story of the little boy walking through the, the church that had, had these beautiful windows that were that had um, of stained glass. And he had a little guy that was with him that had never been in a church building like that before that had those elaborate paintings and the stained glass. And he said, hey, he said, man, who's that guy? And he said, oh, oh, that's St. That's Matthew. Well, who's that guy? Well, that's St. That's Peter. And he said, well, well, what in the world is a saint? And he said, I, I don't know except a person that the light shines through. He said, that's, that's all I know. But isn't that a pretty good example? Isn't that a pretty good definition of a saint? One whom the light shines through. With that being said, what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks as we walk through the last part of chapter 7, we're going to see um, the struggles of a saint, Paul, in his, in his life. Now, one of the things I want you to note in verse 7 to 12 is we're going to be looking today, but if you take 7 all the way to the end, 
you're going to notice there's a little bit of difference in Paul's writing. He's not talking about everybody else, but he's going to bring it down to a very personal level. If you'll take and you'll look at the personal pronouns, I, me, and my, you'll find out there's probably close to 50 uh, acknowledgments or uses of, of those words inside of these passages, which is referencing Paul's own struggle as a believer and a follower of, of Christ. And this is coming from a man who tried to live obedient to the law all of his life. Now, if you look up the word law in the dictionary, this is what it says, a rule that relates to action. And the laws aren't bad. They, they help regulate action. What we do, what we don't do. And some of the words that Paul has already used to describe a law was he used the word yoke, something that provides control or direction. And then he also used the word tutor or guardian, which was for guidance and instruction. Now, there's a difference between the laws that are necessary for Christian living and living up underneath the bondage of the law. We said this last week, the law says, if you do this, then you will live. If you do this and don't do this, then you will live. But it's the gospel that says, if you live, then you will do this. It's not about what I have to do, but it's what I get to do as a believer and a follower of Christ. Now, during the time of Jesus, there would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the keepers of the law, the scribes, and, and these were the guys that were acquainted with the laws, and their desire was to not only keep the law, but many times they complicated the laws. If we were to define the legalist, the legalist would have been one who set a standard so high that as a result, not only did they struggle, but others struggled to keep the standards. With that being said, I just want you to keep those things in mind as we begin reading today because I think they play a big important role as we sort of lay things out and begin with reading uh, chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. Before we read, can we pray together? Can we do that? Father, this is what I ask today, that as we read these passages of Scripture, that it would be the Holy Spirit that speaks to our heart. Father, would our eyes, would they be opened? Would our hearts be opened? Would our ears be opened to hear from you? Because you are our teacher today. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Let's read these passages. Um, let me just ask this question. Did, did you come expecting to hear something from the Lord today? You did? Don't listen to me then. Listen for the Spirit's voice. Here we go. We're going to read. Verses 7 and following. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Paul says, of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not have said you shall not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have had that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me, but still the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good." And so here's Paul beginning with a normal question that would have come from a person from a legalistic background. And the question was this, is the law sin? In other words, Paul, what good is the law if the whole time you're saying we don't need the law anymore? Because here you are talking about the law from a perspective. It sounds like what you're doing is you're making out the law to be sinful. And Paul's response was, no, 
No, that's not what I'm doing. Of course not, he says. I want you to do something for me. We're going to play a little, a little Russian roulette with the, with the scriptures. We're going to move over really quickly. Let's see, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. Turn over to Philippians with me just for a second. I want to make note of something in reference to this that Paul has to say to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 3. And talking about the struggles of a legalist. And this is what Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul's, he, um, Paul himself struggled with legalism because of his background. For those of us that have been raised in church, it's easy for us to struggle with the issue of legalism. Let me just say that. To set a, a set of rules and regulations that we ourselves can't even, can't even live by. And so here's Paul having struggled with this, and this is what Paul writes. He says there in verse 4, if there is anyone who could have confidence in the flesh, it's me because of my background and way of, of life. Now, Paul's going to give us a little bit of, a, of an overview of his heritage and his background um, because there were those who were Judaizers, those who claimed to be better than others. They, they did everything that they could to keep the law, and in turn, what they did is they pointed their fingers at others condemning them because they didn't keep the law that they felt like they should keep. Are you with me? Are, are you with me? Yes? No? Yes? Okay. Let's stay on the same page. And they would have bragged about how good they were at keeping the law. Oh, we're so good about keeping the law. We not only know it, but we're good about keeping it. And they wanted to impress upon them laws so that they would keep because they believed that not only was it by God's grace that they were saved, but there were certain things they had to do um, to, to be saved. And this is what Paul goes on to say. If there's anybody basically that had that opportunity to brag, it would be Paul. And this is what he wrote from his background. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. As for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought that these things were valuable, but now, but now something had happened. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. And so here's Paul outlining for us and those that he was writing his heritage, his Jewish background. And he gives us a list of accomplishments. And if you, maybe you underline some of those. Number one, he says, I was circumcised. Paul said, you know, as a, as a sign of the covenant, he was circumcised, the covenant of Abraham going all the way back. He was a citizen of Israel. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. This would have been really important for him to let them know. The tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin would have been the last son of Jacob and Rachel. Rachel would have died while having Benjamin. Benjamin, that's where his name came from. Uh, um, uh, I think it, it means something about my son's right, my son of my right hand. Rachel was his right hand. That's where he got his name from. She had helped him. She was his favorite wife. <laughs> By the way, that's should only have one wife, right? <laughs> lots of problems. Lots of problems. The tribe of Benjamin would have been the same tribe that, that um, King Saul would have come out of. As a matter of fact, it may have been where Saul, Paul, had gotten his name. It might have been his namesake. We don't know. He went on to say he was a real Hebrew. 
In other words, he was a Hebrew man with Hebrew parents. There weren't, for, for those, he was, he was raised a Jew in a Jewish home. Both of his parents were Jews. There were those that had been converted to Judaism by the practice of certain things being circumcised, obedience to the law. But he was a real, real Hebrew. He was born a, a Hebrew. Um, he said he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, part of the Jewish ruling council. I mean, these were the big dogs and it came to keeping the law. They were the ones that it made everything flow. Pharisee meant separated ones. These were the guys that devoted themselves to the keeping and the details of the law. They were the caretakers. They would have saw themselves as the fence setters. Okay, now hang with me on this because I'm gonna come back to it in a little bit. These were the guys who would have done everything they could to keep the people outside that they didn't think belonged on the inside. Are you with me? You ever known any people like that? The fence setters that set the rules and they set the rules to keep people on the outside, not to allow people on the inside. Make note of that. I'll come back to it. Paul also referred to himself as zealous. He was known as a persecutor of believers. I mean, how many times did we see where Paul not only had people arrested and beaten, but also eventually killed? That was, that was what he was about. I mean, he, he wanted to persecute the believers. And in reference to the law, Paul said in verse 6 that he obeyed the law without fault. Now, he, he wasn't saying that he, was, he wasn't a sinner. He didn't sin. But what he was saying is that when he did sin, he went about the, the right way of providing a, a sacrifice at the temple so that those sins were supposedly forgiven and taken care of. He kept the feast and the rituals. Now, let me say this in reference to righteousness. There's really two types of righteousness. We can say there's two types. There's practical righteousness, and then there's positional righteousness. Practical righteousness is based upon my works, my efforts, my abilities. Um, but as good as we may think our righteousness is its filthy rags, Paul would say. It's impossible. Our righteousness is impossible to, to have a right relationship with God. The righteousness means right relationship, talking about having a right relationship with God, whereas positional relationship isn't about us. It's not our, about our abilities, but it's about our dependence on Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Our righteousness is attributed to Christ and Christ alone. Now, I want you to keep your finger there in Philippians, and I want you to flip back with me to the book of Romans for a second. Romans chapter 10. And I want to read something else to you. Because Paul would say this in, in, uh, in Romans 10. Paul would say, dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. That's what he said. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, passion. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to, to what? Their own way, their positional, their practical righteousness. They cling to their own way of getting rich or right with God by trying to keep the law. There in verse 4, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, who? All. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say many. It didn't say a few. It says, as a result, all who believe in him are made 
right with God. You know, when you think about your relationship with God, are you coming at your relationship with God from a practical righteous perspective or a positional righteous perspective? Now, I told you to keep your fingers on Philippians, didn't I? Go back over to Philippians just for a second. Same place, Philippians 3, the next verse, 3, 9. And Paul would say this, I no longer count on my own righteousness, my practical righteousness, my abilities, my um, works through obeying the law. But Paul, what did he say? I become righteous or right with God through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. If you ever want to remember a way to, to define faith, forsaking all, I trust him. Right? Forsaking all, I trust him. Get my little finger exercise in today. That's what faith is. Faith is letting go of what I have and saying, God, I'm going to place myself, my dependence, my trust on you. See, when God looks at us as, as believers and followers of Christ, what he sees is he looks at us through the blood of Jesus. That our righteousness isn't because of our good works, but it's because of what Jesus did. Now, let's go back to, just to chapter 7. Let's go back because now let's sort of pick up where we left off. All of that is sort of, is, is sort of foundational to where we're going to be at now in Romans 7. And uh, because what I want to do now as we finish up is I want to give you some thoughts in reference to Paul and his experience with the law. Remember that before Paul became Paul, he was Saul, and Saul was a persecutor of believers. On the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with the Lord. He was on his way to Damascus to, to um, persecute the believers that were there. And it was at that time in an encounter with the Lord that he was blinded and he didn't eat or drink anything for three days. And the Bible tells us that he went into Arabia, which would be Saudi Arabia, into the desert where he would spend time with the Lord. And it was during that time he had plenty of time to think, to, plenty of time to ponder and ask questions like the whys and the what fors between where, what he had been raised up underneath and now what he was learning and what the Lord was teaching him the laws, the rituals, what to do, what not to do, what to keep, what not to keep. And here he is in chapter 7, and some of the conclusions that he has in reference to the law as it pertained to the law, we're going to find here. And one of the words first that I want you to write down is this. The law illuminates sin. The law pronounces sin. It brings it to light. Look at what he said there in verse 7, midway through. In fact... It was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you shall not covenant. And then he went on to write in Romans chapter 3, back a few chapters, verse 19. I know you guys are like going, good gracious of life, would you stay still? But I want you to see this because it's really important. Here it is in, in Romans 3, verse 19, where Paul would say, obviously the law applies to those whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one could ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And here's Paul making the point that the law is like a mirror. How many of you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror? And you go, ooh, good gracious. And all of a sudden you start to fix and to, to do whatever you got to do to make yourself look appropriate in the morning. 
The law doesn't change the way you look. The law just shows you what's lacking. The mirror doesn't clean us up, but only shows us who we really are. The mirror, um, like the law, reveals our true condition. The example that Paul uses here in, in our passage is he uses the word coveting. In fact, it was the law, he said, that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting, if it wasn't for the law, if it wasn't for what the law had to say, I never would have known that coveting was wrong. If the law would have not said, you shall not covet. I wonder why in the world he used the illustration of coveting. Why not, you, you shall not murder, or you shall not steal, or you know, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for it is right. Why not that one, right? Why not? Why did he use that? I don't know. The law just doesn't govern, though, the outward external actions, but it exposes the motivations of the heart. Think about adultery. You know, you talk about do not commit adultery, but what did Jesus say? Even if you look at a woman in lust, you've committed adultery. In reference to murder, if you, if you hate, you've committed murder. The law wasn't just there to curtail the outward, the outward actions, but it was also there to govern, um, to govern and bring about the inward attitudes and motivations of the heart. Do you think that coveting is an issue that we, we deal with in America? I mean, you know, for the guy that's got the little John boat and he's got the paddles, you know, and, you know, and his buddy asks him to go fishing and, and then all of a sudden his buddy drives up and he's got this nice bass boat, you know. It's got that 154-stroke engine on the back, big screen up there, you know, fish finder and GPS. And the guy goes home and all of a sudden he gets online and he starts looking. You say, well, covenant's really not that big a deal. It's not really that dangerous. Or is it? How many marriages have ended because of covenant? How much debt has been incurred because of it? How much time has been wasted? And how many people have become distracted from their purpose in life because of it? And so Paul said one of the first things in reference to the law is the law illuminates sin. It pronounces it, it brings it forth. The second thing I want you to see, we see there in verse 8, the law provokes sin. Look at what he says, but sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. It not only illuminates, but it provokes sin. Our natural bent is towards evil and lawlessness. It's like metal attracted to a magnet. Our old nature, our fleshly nature is attracted to doing what is wrong. And it isn't the fault of the law, but our sinful nature. The only thing the law does is it just provokes it. I mean, you see a sign that says no trespassing, and what is your first thought? I mean, we've got friends that have construction, you know, these construction uh, businesses. And I can't, I, I wonder how many times they've left a sign that says, wet, wet paint, do not touch. Or how many times they've, they've laid down some, uh, some cement and they'll put a, a tape around it and say, wet cement, only to come back to find there's footprints or fingerprints 
You know what I'm talking about. What does it look like? You know that sign that says, do not swim past here. Do not cross this line. It's like the Garden of Eden. You guys know it. You know the story. God says, look, you can have whatever you want. I mean, it's yours. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't touch that. Leave it alone. It's not good. <laughs> what did they do? You know the story. They couldn't keep away from it. And what I'm trying to say is that any time there's a law, it seems to provoke the evil nature within us. Look over at chapter 8 for a second in Romans. Chapter 8. We always are looking for the exception of the rule, but look at what he says here in verse 7 in chapter 8. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. Now, in the late 1600s, a man by the name of John Bunyan wrote a book by the name of Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. It was about a man by the name of Christian and his life. It was an allegory, a story with a, with a meaning. And at one point in the book, he takes Christian into this, this home, and the door is shut behind him, and there's dust in that room, and there's a person trying to sweep the dust with a broom, and the only thing it does is makes things much worse. And yet there's a, there's a, there's a person that, that has some water, and they sprinkle it, and it, and, it, and it settles the dust so that the room could be cleaned and the dirt taken out. And Christian said, what does all this mean? And the analogy was that our hearts are like the room in that house. The dust is like the sin in our lives, and the broom is like the law, which doesn't take the dirt out. It only stirs it up. Hmm. But it wasn't until the water came in that the dirt could be, the water was sprinkled and the dirt could be settled and washed away. And it's a reference to the blood of Jesus Christ and what he does for us. So the law doesn't just make us aware of our sin, but it has no power to overcome sin, only the blood of Jesus. See, the law is holy and it's righteous, and it is a reflection of God's holy character, but it was never meant to save us from our sins. Um, let me say this in reference to, to legalism. If we live and try to live by legalism and the law, we only create a lot more problems. So Paul, in his writings, um, would make reference in the book of Galatians. He's writing to the believers there at Galatia, and one of the things that he was addressing was legalism. And Paul would go on to say that legalism, count, it, it creates problems. And in Galatians chapter 5.15, this is what he would say. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out because beware of destroying one another. That's what legalism does. Setting these laws, always trying to point out in everybody else's life what's going on, where they're wrong, where they're struggling. And Paul said here, look, if you're going to live that way, if you're going to live by that means, the law, see, listen, there's freedom in Christ, but the law brings bondage. And if you're going to live that way, you're going to devour one another. If you practice legalism, you're going to destroy one another. Guess what destroys a church? Guess what destroys a church family? Guess what destroys authenticity? Guess what destroys relationships? Guess what destroys fellowship? You know, it doesn't take long to look at one another's faults, does it? 
I mean, Bill looks at me and he goes, well, that joker, man, he's, he's got this fault, this fault, this fault, this fault, this fault. But Bill doesn't spend all his time, do you, Bill, looking at me and telling me all my faults. But Bill loves me in spite of my faults. That's what he does. See, the law, it illuminates sin, it pronounces sin, it provokes sin. And lastly, what the law does is it produces death. Look at those last verses there in, at, uh, in 9 and 10. At one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death. Paul, growing up, would have known the law. He would have been taught how to love God, how to obey God, but when he turned 12, he began to study the law for himself under the tutelage of a great rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And he discovered exactly what you and I have learned in our life. There is no way we can do it. That as good as we might be, we can't be good enough. We will never be good enough. And I wrote this down, and I think this is so applicable. What the law does is it suffocates us, which leads to ending in death. Listen, I want you to think about this. We will never be good enough. The law, the law, the law, the law, the law leads to death. Parents, is there a message in there for us? Is there something in there that we need to hear that God might make very clear for us as parents of how we should treat and how we should, our relationship with our children? Paul, again, in writing to the church at Galatians in the second half, in chapter 3, verse 21, would write this, if the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. In the second half of Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul would say, For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. Let me ask a question. If we could get to God, if we could have a relationship with God depending on our efforts, why in the world did Jesus have to give his life? If it were possible for us to obtain salvation through our own efforts, why would Jesus have to go through the suffering and the pain that he went through so that we might have life? I'll tell you why. Because his death was proof that the only entrance to God of having a relationship with God would be through his blood, which cleanses us from all our sin. See, it's the law that produces death, but there's freedom in Christ. Legalism destroys the body because it sets a standard that none of us can keep. Legalism divides, it destroys, and eventually leads to death. It remind, reminds me of the story of the, of the gentleman that came into the church one Sunday wearing a hat, and the greeters saw him as he walked in the door, and he went and he had a seat. One of the greeters, they talked amongst each other, and they approached the man. He says, well, I'll go take care of it. So he goes over to the guy that's wearing the hat, and he said, um, he said sir, man, listen, we're glad to have you today, but it would be very appropriate for you to take your hat off in, in the church house. And the guy said, um, listen, I thank you so much, but no, I, I think I'll keep it on. Greeter turned around, he walked back out. He said, well, man, that didn't do any good. He said, you need to go try it. So this guy goes and he approaches the man. I mean, it's a few minutes before the service is to begin. He says, sir, listen, we're certainly glad to have you today, but it, would you so kindly remove your hat? It'd be very appropriate 
gentleman said, no, sir, I don't, think I'm, I don't think I will. I think I'll keep it on. So he goes to the back and he tells the head, the head guy. Head guy goes, well, I'll go take care of it. So he goes out and he goes, look, man, let me tell you something. It ain't right to be wearing a hat in Jesus' house. You need to take it off. The guy said, no. He said, I'd rather, I'd rather leave it on. The guy said, why are you trying to be so disrespectful? And the guy said, man, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. He said, this is the first time I've ever had anybody talk to, talk to me. I've been, first time I ever wore a hat, I've been coming here for months, but nobody's ever said anything. And he said, if I take my hat off, then I'm afraid nobody will ever talk to me again. <laughs> Boy, doesn't that hit home. Paul's conclusion, verse 12 but still the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. The law is good and it serves its purpose. Not to just teach us how to live in relationship with God and others, but it also reveals sin and it causes us to run to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon wrote, and I quote, Do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is like a needle. You cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of law to make way for it. If men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners. They will never value the sin offering that was made. There is no healing a man until the law has wounded a man, not making him alive. And he is not alive until the law has slain him, and then he can come only to Christ. Remember that fence that we talked about earlier? How many people on the outside feel left out because there's a standard or a fence that the Pharisees have set that people on the outside can't get in? Story told, true or not, I don't know. Stories told of World War II and a man's death in France. His comrades had brought him to a cemetery to be buried. When they got to the cemetery, the man who was over that cemetery, the overseer, came out and asked, can I help you? And the guy said, we brought our friend here to, to be buried in, in the cemetery. And the man asked him if he was of a specific faith. And the guy said, we don't know. And he said that he can't be buried here. Only those of this faith may be, be buried here. And the guys were really discouraged. They didn't know what to do. And so they went outside the walls of that fence and they buried their buddy on the, outside the walls. They dug a hole. They placed his body in the hole. They said a prayer and they went off to where they would stay the night. They had made plans to come back in the morning. At, at morning time, they, they got up and they gathered their things and they went back to where they had buried that man and dug that hole to say a prayer and say their last goodbyes before going back to the front line. They couldn't find the man's grave. They looked and they looked and they looked, but they couldn't find the man's grave. And they saw the overseer, the man that was that was there, and they asked him, sir, is there something, something's wrong? We can't find the grave of our fallen comrade that we buried last night outside the, the fence. And the priest that was there said, I, I just want you to know I went home last night and as I laid my head down, I became so convicted about what had taken place that you guys didn't have a place to bury your friend. 
I couldn't bring him into the inside of the cemetery to bury him, but what I could do is I could move the fence. And so I spent the night moving the fence so that I could bury your friend. Isn't that an incredible story? See, what legalism does, it builds a fence, but the gospel of God's grace tears that fence down to include people like you and I who are unworthy. Aren't you thankful for the blood of Jesus? Brian's going to sing a song that talks about being thankful. If you've got children in the children's environments this morning, this would be a great time to go and get them. But we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. But in the middle of this, I just want to be able to say that there are some of you here that you, you, you carry with you the attitude of the Pharisee. Maybe the Lord is saying something to you today that you need to hear. In addition, there may be some of you here today that have never tasted or experienced God's grace, forgiveness of sins. You've never trusted Jesus. What would keep you from making the most important decision of your life today? Recognizing that it's not your works that saves you, but it's the grace of God. As Brian sings, you listen right there where you are. Just contemplate, examine your life. And we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper afterwards. Holy One crushed your Son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me Your blood has washed away my sin Jesus, thank you The Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus, thank you once your enemy and now seated at your table Jesus thank you and by your perfect sacrifice I've been brought near your enemy you've made your friend pouring out the riches of your glorious grace your mercy and your kindness know no end your blood has washed away my sin Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, and now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, 
Sometimes people ask, well, who, who is it that can celebrate the Lord's Supper? And the answer to that is those of us that are followers of Christ. It's time for us to go back and to recognize in the Old Testament, the people of the Lord celebrated the faithfulness of God through their participation and celebration of rituals and feast. There were things that God had done and they never wanted to forget and yet it was Jesus in the New Testament that set the example that gave us the privilege of knowing how to remember his death. And that would be through participating in the Lord's Supper. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, man, we're, we're, we're excited to have you participate in this time. If, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, what's keeping you from making that choice? I'm reminded of the words of Paul today as, as he gave us instruction on celebrating the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said, For I received from the Lord which also I passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, that he took the bread. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread representing the body. And he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me and he partake of it. It was the bread that reminded us of the body of, of Christ. But the scripture went on to te teach us that the same way after supper that Jesus took the cup, the cup, and he said, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. And he said, do this and whatever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me, the blood shed. 
You know, I'm reminded that Jesus has not only come, but he's coming again, right? Probably sooner than what we think. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. I don't know when he's going to come, but he's coming. And when he's done, he's coming to, to bring his church, to get his church, to bring together his family, his children. It's going to be a glorious day. But up until that time, we have a responsibility of believers to make his name known into the world, to be instruments, to be ambassadors for Christ, to live for him, not just to celebrate inside of these walls and do everything we can to try to keep people out, but to do everything that we can to try to make the gospel known so that others may come in. As you leave today, my challenge to you is what is God saying to you? In the scriptures that we've read and what we've talked about today, what's God saying to you? And how are you going to put that into practice? How are we going to live in such a way that the people of this community and the surrounding areas know who we are and who our daddy is? That we're Christians and they'll know us by our love. Father, I'm praying today as we walk out these doors, would you use us as instruments of your peace? Father, would we be reminded today of what we have read and, and the word that, Lord, that it's not the law and the keeping in us, our, our goodness that, that, that we're saved, but Father, it's by your grace. Thank you for the demonstration of your love on Calvary, which covers all of our sin. Father, help us to be your instruments as we walk out these doors of your peace to this community. Father, I pray for our our families as there are lots that are suffering and struggling with issues of sickness and surgeries and even death. Father, there are some that are contemplating having to make decisions that are really hard. God, I pray that as we walk together through this season of life, God, that we would be mindful of one another. Help us to be your hands and feet, your encouragement to one another on this journey that we that we're on. Bless us now. Bless the reading of your word and our time together. In Jesus' name we pray.